you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to join uh, with me in turning to Hebrews chapter 6. We have been uh, the last several weeks uh, looking at uh, what has uh, been one of the most divisive passages uh, among believers, especially in regard to the question, can a true Christian lose uh, their salvation? Can somebody who has been uh, in a state of true grace, who has had their uh, sins forgiven, who are justified by faith, uh, can they ultimately be lost? And, and once you look at this passage, you can uh, understand uh, why that debate uh, has raged. And let me uh, pick up at, at verse 4. Uh, and again, very quickly, for those of you visiting, uh, the overall context is a pastoral concern uh, for some uh, in the flock that their inability to grapple with doctrine, their inability to give their heart and mind over to a deeper study of the person and work of Christ uh, may be indicative not only of a culpable spiritual infancy, uh, but might actually be indicative of a heart that's never been regenerate, even though one has had great spiritual knowledge and experience. And so it's in light of that uh, that we read this word of warning. And again, there is a warning here uh, that those who would find themselves in this situation, those who have uh, uh, stated that they belong to Christ, have openly confessed Christ, been a part of the body of Christ, and have experienced spiritual dynamics uh, that are not um, explainable by mere human uh, realities, that for such a one to turn away and to uh, reinterpret the person and work of Christ is to place themselves in a spirit, a, a place of great spiritual danger. And so we read in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And now our text for this morning. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would, in your kindness and mercy, grant aid that, Father, not only that the giving of the word, but, Father, we pray especially that the hearing of the word would be in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Our Father, work in us, we pray. Uh, those who may be in danger and those who are in danger, Father, those who may be on the verge of rejection. Uh, that today uh, their sin would be exposed and the way forward uh, would be embraced and, Father, hope given anew. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, many of you know that in late February of 2012, as I uh, had finished a sermon when I was uh, leaving the building, I experienced what I later came to realize was a massive heart attack. Now, what happened at that moment was a culmination of many years of plaque slowly building up in my left interior descending artery of my heart. And while the attack came in a moment, from the exact moment, a feeling of a punch in the back and a left arm going numb, what happened in a moment had been in process for years. Generally speaking, when we become suddenly or catastrophically ill, a tumor is discovered. The root causes, which are now uh, a cause of great alarm, have lain dormant in our bodies for months, and in some cases for even years. So that when somebody enters into now, coming into the point of our text, into what we would call a spiritual crisis, it is rare for it to come upon a soul suddenly, even if it presents itself catastrophically. See, the problems with Judas did not happen during Holy Week. Judas didn't suddenly turn away from the Lord Jesus. No, what he was, he was and had been for years. And it was only in the crisis of that week that we call Holy Week that the truth of his heart was revealed. Now, the hope in saying what I am saying is this. If some of you are experiencing the early warning signs that there may be something more deeply and seriously wrong with your soul, do not ignore them. For the day is coming when we will all stand before the throne. And the Bible says that books will be opened and we who stand before the Lord will be judged according to the things that are written in the book, which is really a way of saying by the divine uh, understanding, which is without fault, who and what we really were and are will be made known to us and known to all and known forever and irretrievably so. Now, for some, the Bible tells us that revelation of who and what we are is on some level going to be shocking. The thought that they're going to be cast out. And so the Bible says, as Jesus presents it, some will make arguments. Did we not do this and did we not do that? Did we not have such and such knowledge or whatever the case that they will make? But the Lord, who knows all, will make no mistakes. That is, the judge of all the earth will do right. And he will declare that such a one never actually knew him. Now, those texts found scattered throughout the word of God are alarms. But there is no alarm louder or greater than the alarm that we are considering again this morning. The chapter before us, the words for many professing believers, we're going to look at Hebrews 6. Now, not everybody knows every chapter of every book of the Bible. If I said, folks, we're going to look together at 2 Corinthians 8, you might think, 2 Corinthians 8. But if I said to you, 
We're going to look together at Hebrews 6. There's a reason why this text is known. It is the single greatest wake-up call in all of the Bible. And the stark reality of the text, which again is written in the context of a, a concern for a coming apostasy in a certain congregation. This congregation, a Jewish congregation facing persecution because of their embrace of Christ and him crucified. Uh, and a desire for some, the thought is that, well, we'll go back to what we have called a Christless Judaism. We'll go back uh, to our life before we came to embrace Christ. And that there are those, and there have been those, and there may well be those who have made every indication of having a true work of grace in their heart. They have knowledge and they have experience that is rooted in truth. And yet such ones, even such ones, can leave off a good confession of faith in Christ. And what happens, we saw last time, when somebody leaves off their confession of Christ, when they said, Christ in him crucified is my hope, well, what then do you do with Christ in him crucified? You have to reinterpret the history of the gospel. You have to reinterpret who Jesus is. In order to reject him, you have to lessen his glory. And in order to reject him, you have to deny his saving work upon the cross. And so that the work on the cross becomes not the wisdom and power of God, but foolishness and a scandal through their apostasy. In doing so, we saw that they commit a sin so heinous in the sight of God as to put them beyond recovery. To have seen Jesus... In the light of God's word, and to have experienced in your own soul the realities of the Holy Spirit and the world to come, and to then openly reject it, to trample the Savior underfoot, is to place oneself in the greatest eternal danger that one can imagine. Now, having stated the facts of the case, the preacher now uses a powerful illustration of what takes place in the house of God under the ministry of the word of God. And what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to briefly explain. I want to call it a parable. I think we can call this a parable. If you want to call it a story or an illustration. I want to briefly explain the parable. Secondly, I'm going to expound or interpret the the spiritual significance of the parable. And finally, I'm going to seek to apply Uh, this parable to our souls. So first of all, the parable explained. And let me just read the pertinent two verses, verses seven and eight once again. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, or some say herbs, I guess herbs is becoming more, that's an English way of saying it. It's coming back into the U.S. uh, for, uh, I, I don't know that I'll ever bring myself to saying herbs. Uh, but bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. These receive blessing from God. But if it, that is the rain that falls upon the earth, if the drinking in of the rain bears thorns and briars in opposition to herbs, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. All right, now this is a, that's a very simple parable, isn't it? 
Our Lord is fond of using such illustrations or parables. He was a largely agricultural illustrator. Uh, This is similar in many ways to his well-known parable of the sower and the seed. And so you have here, just very quickly, a singular condition. That is the coming of the rain upon the earth. You have two radically different outcomes that produce radically different results. So the singular event is the coming of the rain upon the earth. This is really kind of vivid. It's really kind of a, a, a it's, it, it is, uh, it, there's a bit of flourish here. Uh, there's a bit of a vivid and beautiful use of the language. He doesn't simply say uh, that it rains. He says the earth drinks in the rain. It's a beautiful picture. So, I, you know, I thought to myself this week, you know, uh, I have a, a bit of a tense relationship with rain. Uh, I like it at certain times. For me, you know, if I were in charge of everything, it would only rain at night in uh, the rest. You know, so how do you feel about rain? It's often, rain is often a bother to us. It's a matter of inconvenience. And it's interesting, I think for many of us, if I said to you, well, do you ever pray concerning rain? Yeah, I pray that it won't rain. Uh, rain interrupts our plans. Uh, if we lived in an agricultural society, if we were all farmers, uh, we'd have a very different view or understanding of this text. We'd think differently and pray differently about the rain. And so here's the idea, particularly of a, a farmer whose land is in need of this drink from heaven for the rain to saturate the ground. And the first person that is used, the one whose ground produces herbs, is one who is described, and this is really, I think, the key word in the text, he cultivates the ground, or it's the key phrase, cultivating the ground, useful by those uh, by whom it is cultivated. Uh, The word that's used here uh, for cultivation, I think it's only used here, but it's very similar uh, to words that are used elsewhere, vine dressers, or the old word of a husbandman, Uh, is what is being taken on here. Someone who works the ground, somebody who cultivates the soil, they not only plant seeds, they deal with the aftermath. They deal with weeds. They deal with pests. That's the idea. They work the ground, cultivate the soil. That's what they do. And the hope of the crop, having done his work, is largely in the rain. And then in his cultivation, if it rains, it means cultivation. If it doesn't rain, then nothing is going to grow. But the rain produces growth that causes cultivation, good and bad. So one is an act from heaven, sending of the rain, and the other is the determinative action of a diligent person, planning, and effort that is made. So the rain here, as in all cases in the Bible generally, is blessing. You have one case, obviously, of a judgment by rain. But rain is a blessing. Rain means life. But again, not all life is good life or useful life if you care about what's growing. For the rain that brings the herbs and the fruits and the vegetables also produces things like thorns and briars, thistles and weeds. And the question comes, well, what do you do with thorns and briars and thistles and weeds? 
Well, you do what you can to eradicate them. It's life produced by the rain. It's the result of the rain. But you do what you can to get rid of it. If if you pull them up, they are discarded. You don't just pull it up and drop it where it is because it's going to try to reinsert itself into the ground. You pull it up and you discard it. And if you're able to, you burn it. You throw it away. That's the idea. And sometimes, as we are reminded in other portions of the scripture, these plants grow up side by side. They are intertwined in the same field. And as with the wheat and the tares of our Lord's story, they are not only intermingled, but for a time, indistinguishable. What is that thing sprouting out from the ground? The rain has come. The Seed has been planted and now new life is bursting from the ground. Is it an herb? Is it a tomato? Is it corn? Or is it some kind of a weed? But once their true condition is determined, one is cultivated and the other is cast out and burned. Okay, I probably maybe took too long with that. It's so simple. It makes sense to all of us, I trust. And rain, result of the rain, one considered a blessing, the other a curse that needs to be destroyed. All right, so now let's expound and interpret uh, this parable. As with many of our Lord's parables or illustrations, the intent is really upon the surface. Uh, I was was reading recently about a man who uh, was in... Uh, training for ministry, and it was really fascinating. He told a story about when he was in uh, at, at, a, at a, uh, a Christian event, and somebody was leading them in how to study the Bible. And they were given a certain passage, and everybody was told, you have, you have an hour, and you need to write down 50 observations from the text. 50 observations from the text. So as they're going through that, uh, they asked at the end of it, how many of you came up with your deepest understanding in the first five minutes? And nobody raised their hand. How many of you reached it after, you know, 50 minutes or close to an hour? And the hands went up. There's deep thinking that produced it, that produced deep results. Now, this text is not one of those texts. Now, it has... And I don't mean it to, as a, a pun. It certainly has roots that go down deep. But this text does not necessarily require a deep dive. So what is the rain? I believe we can say that the rain in this case is the work of God through the word of God. It's a powerful spirit-blessed ministry from heaven and blessed from heaven, given from heaven and blessed by heaven. And the earth drinks it up. That is, it comes and it does what it always does. It produces results. Sometimes we think it doesn't. Very often as a preacher, you preach your heart out over something and, and, and it might appear like nothing was done. Well, something's being done. Even when the word is rejected, something is being done. A neglect of the word is something being done. Decisions are being made. Heart work is being done or not done. 
The earth drinks it in, and two forms of life bring it out. The first is a kind of life it is rendered as herbs. It's, it's the Greek word botane. Uh, we get our English word botany from this. Uh, it simply refers to plant or vegetation. It's not strictly herbs here uh, as we would define herbs. It's not just like basil and mint that's being produced. Uh, it can be peppers and, and uh, onions and potatoes and, and all of that. Things that are useful for the youth that are a blessing to the one who cultivates they are useful, literally of good standing is the word in the original. And it, is, and it is blessed by those who will engage in the activity of cultivation. Those who will be a husbandman or vine dresser. So I ask the question, what happens when the word of God comes to you? You read it. You listen to a podcast, sermon audio, you listen to it live, go to a Bible study, whatever it is. What happens when the word of God comes to you? The fact that it comes from heaven, that is, that it's true, and that it may in fact come powerfully. The fact that the word in and of itself is living and active and powerful. That the Bible is by its own definition sharper than any two-edged sword does not therefore guarantee a good result whenever it is given. Understand that. Some of the most powerful ministry that the world has ever known has been rejected by those who heard it. There were whole cities who witnessed miracles, the hand of Jesus, and heard the powerful, life-giving gospel from the mouth of the incarnate God, and were not changed by it. Jesus warns, if I were to say to you, all right, let's take a little survey here, greatest sermon ever preached in human history. Probably going to say Sermon on the Mount, right? At least a lot of us are going to say Sermon on the Mount. Maybe that's an easy give. Sermon on the Mount. What happens at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? How does our Lord predict that people are going to respond to what he just said? Some, he said, are going to hear and put it into practice. And they're the kind of men and women and young people who build their house on solid rock. But others, he said, are going to hear what I am saying They're not going to outright reject it. They're not going to lift their fists to heaven. But what they're going to do is nothing. They're going to do nothing with what they hear. Husbands, love your wives. The heart of the husband's convicted. Does he do anything with it? No. He's given suggestions regarding how to love his wife. He realizes, I could put that into practice with good result. Does anything change? No. Told how to fight your sin. Does anything change? No. How to love your brethren. How to cultivate a home of hospitality. Whatever the case might be, you hear the word, regard to prayer, mortification, affections, pursuit of love and peace, and yet nothing changes. Jesus says, you know what you're doing? You're building your house on sand. God's word and will to some is made known. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about confessed unbelievers. That's a whole different category. 
And again, it's not necessarily angrily rejected. It may even be appreciated. What was it like after the Sermon on the Mount by those who were going to do nothing? Jesus, that was, you know, I, I saw a guy the other, uh, I heard about a guy who, who preached a sermon and then he put it online and he said, in all due modesty, this was a banger sermon. Now, I, you know, I, just, I can't imagine writing that. But the idea was some people came up and told him, preacher, that was really good. That was especially good. I can imagine Jesus got his hand shaken and patted on the back. And that's the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to change as a result of it. There's no change, no repentance, no pleading, no application to the spirit. There is, in the language of the text, no cultivation. Yes, the earth drinks in the word, but there's no pruning, no weeding, and hence no fruit, nothing profitable. Again, things grow, yeah, thorns and briars, weeds and thistles, but nothing useful. And I want to be careful in how I say this, but I believe it is right and biblical. The word itself even delivered with the power of the Holy Spirit, can and does often prove ineffective. That is, ineffective unto the end for which it's given. That you might have life, that you might grow in Christ's likeness. And I want to say this on behalf of all the preachers here. We appreciate your prayers for us as preachers. But I wonder if we need to do far more praying for us as hearers. Don't stop praying for us. But if you're praying for Jim and Derek and whoever else to preach the word in power, pray for yourself to hear it with power. The word given in power makes a good sermon. The word received in power makes a good life. Think of the ministry of the prophets in this regard. 2 Chronicles 36 is... A powerful passage in this regard, verses 15 and 16. And this is Israel coming to the end of its uh, corporate life, about to be judged. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was, excuse me, arose against his people till there was no remedy. Is that a result of bad ministry? And you even here have, and again, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe God does as he pleases in heaven and on earth, but there is a sense here of divine frustration. God gave that word not to harden them, but out of mercy to bless them and to forestall their judgment. Because he loved the city and he loved his temple. And yet they scoffed and rejected the life-giving benefit of the word. They heard the word, rain fell from heaven, but it wasn't cultivated, it wasn't heard with faith, it was not heard with an earnest desire to hear and obey. The, the Hebrew word Shema, which was familiar to Jewish people, I may not be saying it fully correctly for them. Shema, hear O Israel, the word hear, 
is a word that means hear with an intent to obey. It's not just to listen. And you ask again the question, could it be that all that wealth of privilege would prove of no worth or benefit other than to add to their judgment? Will those who profess faith be content in the words of James to be hearers of the word and not doers? Now, there are people that are that demand that they be hearers of, of the word and of a good word. There are people who are disobedient, but who insist that their preachers be faithful, uh, confessional, or 1689 preachers. I'll only go to a 1689 church so that I won't do what they say either. Like, why are you, why does it matter? If you're not going to do what's said, listen to Joel Osteen. Your judgment will be less. There are those content to know, who want to know the will of the Father. Check off a box. Judge others. Argue with others. And yet resist the hard work of cultivation. The hard work of spirit mortification. The hard work of changing the way they actually live, which they know to be in... uh, Contrary to God's word. D.A. Carson once wrote these words, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, now listen to what he's saying, grace-driven effort. I'm not here bootstrapping this. I'm not simply saying, come on, guys, try harder. I'm telling you to apply to the throne of grace to find grace to help in your time of need. I'm talking about activity rooted in the reality that you've been loved with an everlasting love, that your body is not your own, that you've been bought with a price, and you therefore glorify God with that body which is no longer yours but his. That's grace-driven. That's what I'm talking about. But he says this, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Who here ever has made progress in anything through laziness? How'd you get to be, where'd you get all this money? I just took a nap. (laughs) How did your home change? It used to be like toxic and now it's wonderful. I don't know. This happened. I, I lost my hearing. My wife doesn't bother me anymore. Whatever. That's what some people, that's how they want to grow. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. And so we have those who have received the word in the context, tasted it as the good word of God, and even been partakers of the Holy Spirit that is given things by the Spirit of God. That word has enlightened them and at some point delighted them, but it does so no more. When the rain falls, 
There are no more herbs, no more growth, no more transformation by the word, rather the growing of weeds and thorns and briars. If heard at all, the word is often received with a kind of contempt, not quite up to snuff, a constant sniping criticism that it's not what I want. A heart of bitterness grows, anger grows, self grows, contempt for the things of God grow, but not Christ-likeness, not patience, not love, not kindness, not gentleness, not self-control, not peace and joy and love and patience. And all that decline, this is the, this is the sad reality, all that de- decline can happen even as the rain falls. Some of us were talking the other day about uh, an old preacher named Octavius Winslow. And though I'm not going to encourage everything Winslow did, ecclesiastically, I would heartily endorse most, if not all, of his writings, particularly his devotional books. And he writes concerning growth and grace uh, in this way. The believer is nowhere in the Bible spoken of or addressed as a lifeless machine a mere automaton, but as one alive unto God, as created in Christ Jesus, as a partaker of the divine nature. As such, he is commanded to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling, to give diligence to make his calling and election sure, to watch and pray lest he enter into temptation. Thus does God throw a measure of the responsibility of his own standing upon the believer himself that he might not be slothful, unwatchful, and prayerless, but he be ever sensible to his own solemn obligations to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, remembering that he is not his own, that he's been bought with a price. If the power of God is the efficient cause of the eternal security of the believer, which we assert, yet as auxiliaries which God has appointed, And by means through which his instrumentality works, the believer is to use diligently all holy means of keeping himself from falling as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as the subject of divine life, as a pardoned, justified man. Again, I'm talking about legalism here. He is called as such a person, and only such a person can be called, and only such a one can obey, is called to labor perseveringly to pray ceaselessly, and to watch vigilantly. He is not to run willfully into temptation, to expose himself needlessly to the power of the enemy, to surround himself with unholy and hostile influences, and then take refuge in the truth that the Lord will keep him from falling? That's called presumption. And our brother from long ago said, God forbid... This were most awfully to abuse the doctrine that is after godliness, to hold the truth in unrighteousness, and to make Christ the minister of sin. Dear reader, he says, watch and pray against this. Well, that's the interpretation of what is being said. Now, let me take some time, a few minutes here, to apply. And I'm going to give here two lists. I'm going to talk about do this, don't do that, okay? I want to set it again in the context of the reality of new life in Christ. 
And what I'll do is I'll email this out so you don't burn up your pen or pencil trying to write this down or get arthritis in your thumb if you're trying to type it on your phone. Let's apply this parable. The signs of physical heart disease are known. And they are relatively easy to identify and in some cases, blessedly, to reverse. If you were to see a cardiologist, he would be sure to ask you several questions to determine the health of your heart. What are you eating? What are your exercise patterns? Gulp, gulp. Uh, Have you felt any chest pain? Are you easily out of breath? Have you felt any tightness in your left arm or shoulder or back? It's far more important to determine if that's the physical. Again, it's far more important to determine the state of one's spiritual heart. The word of God repeatedly stresses the importance of the heart. Perhaps the best known text in that regard is Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. So what are some signs of heart trouble? There is first of all, I'm going to ask, so you're saying, am I in danger? So if some of you went to the hospital, you know, let's, I'm going to pick on Kevin there, peak of physical condition there, and, and, and Kevin went to the doctor and said, oh, I, I, heard, I heard somebody talk about having a heart attack, and I got a little bit worried, and he's like, well, I probably don't have much to worry about, but let me ask you some questions. Probably not. But for others of us, if we're thinking to ourselves, do I need to listen to this? And on one hand, yet we all do. But some may especially need to listen. What are signs of heart trouble? The first is a drifting from a position of fervent love for the Savior. So I wanted to sing today, my Jesus, I love thee. Just words. Just words, pretty words, sung, sung well. But just words. We are all familiar with our Lord's words to the church at Ephesus, wherein he warns them concerning their having left or drifted from their first love. They've drifted, slow, subtle movement, which now results in them being far from shore. That's the idea of drifting. When love for Christ has grown cold, it is the most significant sign of heart disease. Now listen, we are not justified by our affection toward Christ but rather our faith in him. But having believed in him, Brendan read it this morning, and I hope it stood out to you, 1 Peter 2, 7, that to you who believe, he is precious. Not he ought to be. If you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, how could he be other than precious? And if he's not, then either you haven't believed in him or you don't understand him. If if, if I could ever take one of you like to the Grand Canyon and you'd never seen it before and you looked at it and went, meh, you know, got your phone out. A part of that would want to smack you. What's wrong with you? You, Meh, meh. To this? To the person of Christ? We, we are saying, we, we, the Bible tells us he's precious. And if you believe what the Bible says, he'll be precious to you. I'll, I'll take that down. I, I've got a number of things here. I'm going to go through most of them relatively quickly. 
But somebody was describing, trying to give us a little bit of a description of the glory of Christ. And I, I may not get all of this correct. I may not have, I've got it, I think, at least close, okay? If this little piece of paper, going by the side, I'm going to give you a scale demonstration, was descriptive of the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles. Okay, so let, that's our standard. The next star, if we started, okay, 93 million, it's another 93 million miles, another 93 million. How high would this stack have to be to reach the next star? 70 feet. And if we went to the edges of the galaxy, 30 miles of paper stacked one on top of another. And Jesus controls it all with the word of his power. He's not nothing. He is altogether lovely. And so Paul can then state that if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. A second sign that something is seriously wrong is a loss of appetite for God's word. The scriptures picture the word of God as food for the soul. It's pictured as sweet food, delightful food. It ain't just beets and kale. Now, some of you love that. I'm sorry I offended you. It's honey. It's delightful. Sweet food. It's a source of wealth. It's gold and silver, riches beyond compare. And if our Bibles are neglected throughout the week, barely if ever nibbled upon, if the preaching of the word of God to your soul is not a priority to you, then something's wrong. A third sign is a disinclination, a growing disinclination to fellowship with and love God's people. And again, we live at a time when I, and I understand churches have lots of issues, and I understand why some people, I'm amazed that some people still love the church, having been through what they've been through. But I'm trying to say, trying to understand what the scriptures tell us about the life of God among the people of God. If we are to cling fast to the head, as we are told, you're also going to find your arms wrapped around his body as a necessity. John tells us that if we do not love the brethren, our, our brothers and sisters, the ones we see, 1 John three fourteen says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Not just because we believe the gospel, but because a belief in the gospel has produced a new heart and a new life, which the law of God is written, and that law is all about love, and therefore we love our brethren. And it says, he who does not love his brother lives in death, abides in death. A fourth sign of heart trouble is a sense of ease or peace with sin. I hear some people say sometimes, well, I'm struggling with this. I'm going to define struggle. Uh, when it presents itself, I say yes. That's not struggle. Rather than making war with sin, rather than seeing sin the way a man should see a tumor in his body or invading or an invader in his home. We can make light of sin, excuse sin, barely register grief toward its presence and its effect. J. 
Jesus came to save from sin's presence as well as sin's power, as well as from its guilt. Fifthly, a sign of spiritual heart disease is a heart that is fixed on earthly joys and pleasures to the neglect of the heavenly. God has, to be sure, given us all things to richly enjoy. He delights to give good gifts to his children. Some of those are physical gifts. They're sight and sound. We can touch them, smell them, eat them. But if our hearts are enamored with the gifts, if our greatest joys and heartaches have to do with the passing things of this world rather than on those things which are lasting and eternal, we have heart work to do. What is another sign of heart trouble? A final sign that I would highlight is a cool indifference to the eternal state of unbelievers around us. One of the surest signs that we do not really believe the orthodox truths that we confess, that is, man has an eternal soul which must live forever either in heaven or in hell. One of the truest signs that we may not really believe that is how we think and feel and interact with those who are unbelievers. So when I say that there may be heart, this may be signs, these are signs or may well be signs of heart trouble. So what do we do? Let me very quickly lay out several things. Seven words of exhortation. Very quickly. Commit yourself to daily communion with God. Make time to thank God, to seek renewed strength from God, to confess sins toward God, and to intercede for others. Read or listen to the Bible daily. Meditate. The blessed man meditates on God's word. Memorize. That is, hide God's word in your heart. Secondly, as best as you are able, health allowing and providence allowing, commit yourself to the stated meetings of the church. Every single meeting of the church for instruction, worship, and prayer is designed to give glory to God and to bring help to you on the pilgrim way. And by willfully absenting yourself from those meetings, you are denying yourself crucial nutrition for your soul. Thirdly, commit yourself to mortifying sin. And that is to say, is there some nagging issue in your life, some place of disquiet in your soul, something which saps your strength and your assurance, some lingering issue of concern regarding your soul, some sin which so easily ensnares you, And I simply ask the question, brother, sister, when will it be dealt with? Shall sin have dominion over you? Has God placed the resources at hand, prayer and the word and the spirit and the help of brothers and sisters to overcome it? And and so I have to ask, do you desire victory? Because he has promised that he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Fourthly, and this may sound odd, commit yourself to hospitality. 1 Peter 4 9, be hospitable toward one another without grumbling. What I'm saying here, dear ones, is that uh, as I understand my Bible, and I think I'm right about this, whether we realize it or not or live like it, we need each other. And we need each other. We don't just need to sit next to each other and sing next to each other for a couple of hours a week. We need to be in and with each other, help each other, pray for each other, love each other, bear each other's burdens. Fifthly, commit yourself to deal with unnecessary distractions. 
We all have distractions in our lives or jobs, daily human needs or commitments to family, etc. But are there things that are filling your time and your affections that detract you from the greater issues of life? Consider. Sixthly, just giving some exhortation. Somebody says, how do I deal with this? All right. Commit yourself to study. Read a good biography. Read a good book on doctrinal subjects or practical Christian living. Go deep into your Bible. I have found that few things have been more helpful in my life and more challenging than the reading of good biography. I've gotten out of some of that habit. I'm trying to get back into it. I realized recently I was going through uh, some things that I had written years ago and, I, and how many of them were rooted in devotional books that I was, that I was reading at that time. Ryle, Winslow, Spurgeon, whatever it was. And sometimes you get, you get away from that. And, and again, in the word, but maybe not as much in the devotionals. And I found how much my soul was helped by those things. Spend your time with worthy subjects, well-written treatments that aid you in growing in godliness. And then finally, dear ones, enjoy the rich benefits of a sanctified Lord's Day. God has, by design, and I believe by commandment, given you a whole day to stop, rest, and delight in him. A day designed to be for us a foretaste of heaven and a declension in our commitment to its benefits will not promote heavenly ends. Turning your Sunday into another Saturday is not going to grow you in grace and godliness. Well, dear child of God, these are real things that are out there. And by I say that, I mean there, there are real people who are really in spiritual declension. And some of them are in our midst. I don't preach this as someone who can look at my congregation in total and say, I have no concern for any of God's people. I am burdened. I'm burdened that some in particular are on a road that's going to lead you to a place where all the tears and prayers and pleading and warnings, where the thought of hell itself will be yawned at. And it will be impossible to renew such to life. Is your heart declining in its love to the Savior so that the thought of leaving him is less horrifying than it was when faith was brand new and you pledged in some water of baptism, I will follow him in faithful, obedient discipleship all the days of my life. He will be my chief treasure. And then life comes. And busyness comes. And sin comes. And disappointment comes. And neglect comes. And suddenly the thought, you know, maybe there are other ways. Maybe it's not all real. Maybe it's not all real true. And it begins with the slow corruption of the heart. The rain that falls produces herbs useful to those who cultivate it. May God aid us to be such cultivators. Let's pray.
Well, Father in heaven, we do pray that you would search our hearts. Lord, aid us to know ourselves. You know us altogether. And Father, aid us not to deceive ourselves, not to excuse our declension. Our Father, we pray that even as we age, that we would be like those evergreens spoken of in the scripture, still bearing sap and strength in old age due to your faithfulness. We ask these mercies in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.